Hi there, and welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I'm Paul McConnell, the Chair of the Scientific Ethics Committee. Now, I'm really excited uh, to chat to our next guest here today. We've had several strong themes that have run through the Congress. We've talked about sustainability, but if we think back to our plenary lecture, we're also thinking about patient-centeredness, patient outcomes, and sometimes the conflicts and problems that can arise when we're trying to foster these relationships. So it's my pleasure to have with me Ms. Sarah Barclay, and Sarah is the director and founder of the Medical Mediation Foundation. Sarah, thanks for having us. Hi, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. So I think probably a good way to start this off would be from your experience and the research that you and your colleagues have done, what do you think are the key causes of conflicts between patients and families and health practitioners? It's, it's a really interesting question. When we started doing this work um, back in 2010, one of the first things that we had to try and do was try and define what we meant by a conflict mm-hmm. in healthcare. And, and also to overcome the reluctance often that people had to actually naming something as a conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, what we found in the, in the work that we've been doing since then is that there are three really key elements. Communication breakdown is present in pretty much all of the conflicts mm-hmm. that, that we've seen and experienced. And with that communication breakdown has come a, a breakdown of trust as well. Mm-hmm between patients, families, and professionals. And the second key cause is, is I suppose, what we call a mismatch of expectations and, and hopes that families might have and what professionals feel is achievable or realistic mm-hmm. given their medical expertise. Um, and the third thing is where there's a real difference in, in perceptions that families might have about quality of life of their loved one or perhaps even their own quality of life and the perception of what degree of suffering is being experienced if they're talking about a family member or as in a lot of our work a child because a lot of our research has been based around paediatrics. I think that's it in doctors we've sort of got we've got a wee phrase that's almost like a safety blanket for us where we talk about best interests and that comes up repeatedly I'm sure you'll hear doctors talk about best interests all the time yeah and what we've seen is that where there isn't you know where there's consensus between professionals Mm -hmm. and families using a phrase like best interests isn't going to be a big deal Mm -hmm. but if there is tension or if there is disagreement the the trouble with that word is that it can sometimes set professionals and families up in opposition Mm -hmm. to each other because the professionals will think well based on our experience based on our expertise we think we know what's best mm-hmm. and of course the families will be saying well hang on a minute we know our loved one or our child best and so we've tended to try and get away from using that that phrase as far as possible even though of course in law it's critical yeah I mean I remember um, one of my law professors when I was studying law um, they used to say well best interests it's easy to know when we should be seeking them it's slightly more difficult to know who we should ask about them and actually it's impossible to find a definition of them properly and Mm -hmm. I think 
Would you say it's fair to say that a lot of conflict is rooted in the fact that everyone thinks that they're working in the patient's best interest? Yes, and, and in fact, and I think that's true and actually one of the most destructive things about conflict when it happens is that you can you can have very entrenched positions developing mm-hmm. where actually the person who matters most to everybody whether it's the family member or the child mm-hmm. um, somehow gets lost in the middle and we've seen that happen in a lot of the conflicts that we've been involved in mediating mm-hmm. um, and in the work that we've done with parents and, and professionals mm-hmm. you know the person who matters most actually ends up being the victim in almost a, in almost in a, in a lot of these cases yeah um is maybe is it maybe worth thinking about as as doctors we talk about best best interests do you think there's more than one type of best interest could we be better at some best interests than others i think i'd say do you know the important thing is to explore what that word means mm-hmm. with with patients because absolutely you're right people have very different perceptions of it and I think with us as mediators and when we're resolving conflict what we're interested in is exploring different perspectives Mm -hmm. and perceptions and just acknowledging that not everybody is going to agree um, but people will have different views and so when we're talking about best interests actually being able to say you know what what does that mean for you if you're talking to a parent or a family member, what might best look like? Does it mean doing absolutely everything or does it mean saying we've done as much as we can and it's time to stop? And that may be different for every family. And, you know, you mentioned about, you know, the causes of conflict. Are there specific situations or times that conflict's more likely? I think... And they're actually some of the the very hardest cases to to mediate when we're talking about end of life Mm -hmm. situations. When we're talking about situations where the clinicians, uh, the the medical team feels that there is nothing more that can be done and the moment has come to withdraw or to stop or not to start um, life-sustaining treatment, those are the hardest. And Mm -hmm. you all know much better than me, those are the hardest moments to to explore and that's where the communication becomes absolutely critical um, because we've seen situations where the skill of the the professionals in exploring with a family you know that they feel that moment has come but where do the family sit Mm -hmm. with all of this how those conversations go can sometimes make all the difference between something ending up in conflict and disagreements Mm -hmm. or ending up in in shared decision making Mm -hmm. and consensus and how important is language and the language that we as doctors use in these situations i think it's absolutely critical Mm -hmm. and and i know from talking to families that the words that have been said to them have stayed with them for years Mm -hmm. afterwards and that's why we focus in the work that we do so much on actually what are the words you might use in this conversation Mm -hmm and the planning for it and the the you know the the context in which language might be received by different mm-hmm. families as well i think just to add one thing to that that families often say that they feel sometimes that clinicians take hope away mm-hmm. from them in what they've said and they will often say you know hope is the one thing we don't ever want to let 
go mm -hmm. off, even if there's only half an hour of hope left or two days, yeah. or whatever it is, there has to be something we can hold on to. Mm -hmm. And if that's, they feel that's taken away from them, that can often lead to the beginnings of conflict. Mm -hmm. So we've seen the beginnings of conflict. You know, you've, you've talked about that. What's the impact then of conflict in terms of relationships between the professionals and the family and patients? Um, particularly when we're trying to move to a, a shared decision-making model? The impact of conflict can be really destructive and significant mm -hmm. for professionals and for families. So mm -hmm. with professionals, we've seen um, clinicians going off sick mm -hmm. um, uh, for, you know, for a long time because of the stress of particular situations. We've seen families um, withdraw from conversations or mm -hmm. ask not to have particular members of a clinical team looking after them or looking after their child. Mm -hmm. uh, what we often see where there's conflict is avoidance. Yeah. And actually in that gap, all sorts of assumptions start being made about the other person. You know, he's mm -hmm. a that kind of doctor or she's, or he's a that kind of nurse. And actually what, what we get away from is the conversations that really need to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but in conflict, there's that sense of, of entrenchment and almost of, of different camps mm -hmm. being, being established. And it's a difficult word to use, but I, some of the situations I've seen, I, I'd almost describe as emotional war zones. They've mm -hmm. become so difficult for professionals and families to negotiate a space where they can actually think about shared decision making. And I think that was it. I, I remember reading about um, a famous UK case for um, our European listeners, um, James V. Entry. Um, and at the end of that case, there was a 70% staff turnover um, in that unit yeah. um, because the conflict and the court appearances were just so awful for mm. everyone to, to deal with. I think. I think that's right. And, and of course, into the mix over the last 10, 15 years or so, we've seen the impact of social media. I think what has what is really tough, really difficult for the, the professionals is their sense that they genuinely have no voice because mm -hmm. of patient confidentiality. Yeah. Their viewpoint cannot be heard, cannot be shared. And yet they feel perhaps sometimes um, the unfairness mm -hmm. of families being able to speak publicly um, about what's happening to them. And I think that's a very, very difficult place for professionals to be. And also for families who get drawn into mm -hmm. what feels like a sort of unstoppable media machine. Yes. That can be very tough. And again, gets away from the person who matters most at the center of it all, whether it's a, a child or a patient or family member. Because we've seen that in the last few years um, in the UK, and I imagine it's happened in other countries where these highly emotive, very distressing paediatric cases have, have played out um, on national media. Mm. Um, and presumably that alienation then that the staff can feel is only going to reinforce the conflict. What we've also seen in the last few years is the real rise of social media um, which I think often fuels those disagreements which have ended up as very public disagreements because they've ended up in the courts. 
Um, and I'm thinking particularly of the Charlie Gard case, which was, uh, I think, 2016, 17 now, more recently last year, the Archie Battersby case, where in, in those situations, the impact on staff um, and of course on families, but the impact on staff has been enormous, that there has had to be security in hospital wards, that sometimes members of staff have had to have protection coming to and from work. And with some of the cases, we've seen demonstrations outside the hospitals. None of that is conducive to compassionate, shared decision-making or resolution, sadly. But we've seen that happen in a number of cases now, and I think it's the impact on everybody is enormous. Yeah, I, th I think as well, particularly with the paediatric cases and, um, and looking at them, one of the big difficulties is, yes, it's very emotional for doctors to be involved in these cases, but we've still got a sort of professional space and guidelines that we can try and work within. But if you're a parent, the only guidance you've got is be the best parent that you can be. And that might be looking for other avenues, you know, trying to explore other other technologies and that can maybe come off as a as working against the medical team and that can foster conflict. Is that Yes, and, and, and I think there's, there's really good research to show that, you know, parents feel that their role and their duty as parents is to explore everything, to leave no stone unturned, even if the chances of that being of benefit to their child are, are minuscule. Um, and, of course, what's available to families in terms of resources um, is hugely increased over the last few years. I think it also makes it really tough for parents because sometimes they feel that they need to turn themselves into experts in order mm -hmm. to be the best parents. And I think that's very tough for professionals as well because they sometimes will say, you know, we, we feel as if our expertise that mm -hmm. we have built up over many years is simply doesn't count for anything. Mm -hmm. And so some of the conflicts that we've seen mm -hmm. Um, have arisen where you know there there hasn't been able to be a space where mm -hmm. parents can come and say look we've read this and this and this and we, we think this might be of, of benefit and then be able to explore that and have a conversation with the professional and talk about it um, that that has become quite a difficult thing to do and of course professionals time is so pressured too so I, I'm glad you mentioned that it's a, a recognition actually that we do need something else. We need that space. Um, so that's probably a good bit to ask then. What is mediation? And how can it have a role in helping resolve these conflicts? Well, I, I, I talked about, you know, people starting to avoid each other when conflict arises and that conversations that really matter almost stop being possible. What mediation does and what as a mediators we do um, is in its simplest form to support and facilitate some really tough conversations that might not otherwise be possible so um, as mediators we're not brought in to decide things we're not arbitrators we're not decision makers we're facilitators of dialogue essentially mm -hmm. so we are impartial and our role is there to support 
all the parties in that room, mm -hmm. so professionals, mm -hmm. families, mm -hmm. and to allow everybody to have their say, for their voices to be heard, mm -hmm. um, for their voices and their perspectives to be acknowledged mm -hmm. um, by someone who's not involved in that conflict. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, you know, I'm, I, I hear everybody's story mm -hmm. and we meet with parties beforehand so that that is a safe and confidential space for them to share exactly what's mm -hmm. on their mind, what they would hope to get out of mediation. And that's not shared with anybody else. Mm -hmm. So the role and value of mediation is that it is a confidential space, which allows conversations that, you know, certainly wouldn't be possible in a courtroom because that's not what a court mm. is there to do. It's a space where hopefully the role of the mediator is to um, allow both parties in a sense to, to step back, to mm -hmm. start listening to each other, to rebuild communication mm -hmm. if it's broken down. Um, and to, to start again from a different place. Because I think that's a lot of these you know, eth you know, big ethical issues and, and things are ethical issues because they exist within a grey area that that there might be more than one answer to. Do you, mm. do you feel that your role is allow is to allow people to explore that grey? Yes, and you know one of the things that happens in conflict is that people start taking up more and more extreme mm -hmm. positions. Mm -hmm. And what you hope in mediation is that you can sort of help support, supporting sort of those barriers to come down a bit, mm -hmm. and for everybody to be able to see the nuances, and that there aren't, you know, particularly in end of life cases, there isn't a happy ending here. Yeah. There isn't, you know, mm -hmm. I. I don't really use the word success as a mediator because mm -hmm. if you're talking about reaching consensus about the withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment there is no best in that it's, mm -hmm. a child is going to die at the end of it mm -hmm. the the best in a sense that that we can hope for as mediators is to is to allow a space for that dialogue and for the relationship between parents mm -hmm. and professionals to be restored restored or rebuilt so that even if they agree to disagree mm -hmm. and ask a judge to decide, mm -hmm. you know, that's okay. That doesn't mean that mediation's failed. It's mm -hmm. me it means that they've been allowed to, or able to get to that point mm -hmm. where they say, actually, we're not going to be able to agree between us. We need to ask someone mm -hmm. else to decide. And that's probably important because I think, again, within UK law, um, when we're looking at paediatric cases, the threshold potentially for going to court is just one of best interests. So in theory, you could find yourself there relatively quickly. And once you get to court, there's only one answer and that's the answer given by the court. So mm. I think, do you, th do you view mediation as a way, not necessarily to avoid court, but to go to court with more things explored? That can be one of the really positive um, benefits of it. And I think that the judge uh, in the Charlie Gard case was very explicit about that. You know, he was advocating, um, Justice Francis, advocating the use of mediation. He said, even if all it does is to allow those different perspectives to be heard and shared. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mediation uh, does result in, in cases not going to court. Mm -hmm. um, we've certainly been involved in, in, in some of those where the parents and professionals have been able to reach consensus together. Mm -hmm. um, 
And equally, there have been other times where there's been a sort of mutual agreement to disagree. Mm -hmm. And that's okay too. Well, that's actually quite quite interesting, good to hear. So maybe you could expand on that and give us an example of where mediation has been Mm -hmm. successful. Um, The sort of cases, and and we can't ever discuss individual cases. Of course. um, The sort of cases uh, which um, I've been involved in have been, but what some of them have been end of life situations where the clinical team has felt that life sustaining treatment should be um, withdrawn. And the parents were absolutely adamant that that wasn't going to happen, um, that um, only only God would decide when mm-hmm. that time was, was would, would come. The process of mediation, and that's one of the things we've learned actually, took place over several weeks mm-hmm. um, of individual meetings with the family, mm-hmm. individual meetings with the clinicians, and then together. And over time, um, they were able to reach a point of mm-hmm. consensus supported by their own religious community mm-hmm. and we often see the, the religious communities almost playing the role of mediators mm-hmm. in a supportive way um, and uh, and so some of those cases have not gone to court um, and the and the, the child has died life sustaining treatment has been mm-hmm. withdrawn but in an atmosphere of um, peace, peacefulness, not conflict. I, I think that gets it. You can't necessarily in this case have a success, but you can allow people to find peace. And it's the parents that will have to go on living their life. And that's probably as as close to a success that, that you would be able to get from these situations. Yes, and one of the parents who'd very kindly allowed us to to share her reflections on on mediation said that the mediation process had been a really key factor in helping her to come to terms with um, the death of her child. It was an important part of that um, bereavement process for Mm -hmm. her because she'd been able to step away from the conflict and, and... come to not not acceptance I don't think parents ever no. accept but um, not that position of battle battling mm-hmm. which she had been in at the beginning of the mediation process and, and that is really important mm-hmm. and equally for the professionals if they've felt that through mediation they've been able to come to mm-hmm. um, a feeling where they've been able to acknowledge the parent's perspective without mm-hmm. feeling that they've had to go into a kind of I'm right, you're wrong mm-hmm. battlefield, then for the professionals that's left them feeling that you know, they, they did the best they could. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear you use the word process as well um, because I think sometimes we've got this idea that we'll just get somebody else in and it'll be a quick fix. That, that's not the case, is it? Well, from our experience, mediation mediation can happen in a day. Mm-hmm. It's possible. Um, but in some of these really complex cases where there's, a, there's something of an emotional journey to go on mm-hmm. for everybody concerned, it can take place over time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the key to mediation is that it is a flexible process. Mm-hmm. And so once as a mediator you've been asked to come in and mediate mm-hmm. a case, then you'll want to explore with both parties what are the issues to be mediated? Mm-hmm. What 
might best benefit them as far as the process. Mm -hmm. The mediator manages the process and in a sense designs the process mm -hmm. and, um, and is flexible all the way through. The process mm -hmm. will adjust and will change according to the needs of the parties. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's where it can be really valuable actually. We're not coming in to impose a process, mm -hmm. but we're there to manage the process in a way which supports everybody. Yeah, and I think that's it. Doctors, I think, more and more now are realising that their soft skills are just as important as their hard technical skills. And if we had a problem with a diagnosis, we would think nothing about asking for a second opinion with that diagnosis. If we've got a problem with communication, we should be able to recognise that and bring in assistance for us from that way. Is that a fair representation of... Yes, but it's really difficult because yeah. what we've seen is that professionals, I think particularly in paediatrics, you know, they feel we should be good at this. We should be able to mm -hmm. resolve things. And so they'll keep trying mm -hmm. and they'll keep going. And so we've seen situations where conflicts have escalated and got into that really entrenched place on both sides for the best of intentions because the doctors were thinking surely if we just you know try a bit harder or have a different kind of conversation we'll get there and mm -hmm. that doesn't always happen so I think acknowledging where there is a conflict mm -hmm. is a real sign not of failure uh, but of courage and being able to ask for help if it's if it's needed so this has been a really fascinating talk and I think we've covered lots here what do you think for our listeners are three key things that would be helpful to support health professionals manage conflict? I think it's really important for an approach to managing conflict to be coming from right from the top of a, of a hospital, mm -hmm. of a healthcare organisation, and that health professionals on the front line know that they are supported by the senior teams, the management in a hospital. Um, because when conflicts arise, uh, they often need to go for help. Mm -hmm. What we've seen sometimes is that they will not get that support from above. So there needs to be a really mm -hmm. consistent approach. Um, I think, and um, yes, I would say that because it's what we do. I think we've seen the benefits of training for professionals in recognizing, understanding, and managing conflict. And we've, we've tried to create an evidence base around that. And then clinicians working together, consistency within a clinical team mm -hmm. in recognizing conflict situations and thinking, how are we going to manage this together rather than splitting off mm -hmm. into separate camps, which, which tends to exacerbate the conflict, not to, to de-escalate it. Sarah, this has been an absolutely fascinating talk. Thank you so much um, for giving your time um, with us today. So thank you everyone for listening uh, to this episode. The ESAIC releases monthly podcasts on the SEAC website and various other streaming platforms. We hope you will join us for the next session.